Welcome to Living Yin, a podcast series that seeks to enlighten you about yin yoga, Chinese medicine, philosophy, and meditation. I'm Truth Robinson, and I'm a doctor of Chinese medicine and a yin yoga and meditation teacher. This podcast series seeks to unite the yin yoga practice, the anatomical theory that surrounds it, and the Chinese medicine theory which brings it all to life. My goal is to demystify Chinese medicine and to offer anatomical concepts in a digestible way, as well as offering philosophy for you to go deeper into the layers of your own consciousness. In this episode, we are going to be talking to the author and yin yoga teacher and trainer, Bernie Clark. He's authored the invaluable books of Complete Guide to Yin Yoga, Your Body, Your Yoga, and Your Spine, Your Yoga. We're going to talk about how to practice yin yoga safely, what does safely actually mean, and the few times that potentially safely is not so good for us, and what this means for our muscles, connective tissue, our nerves, and our emotional body as well, delving into how potentially our traumas can become embodied and a barrier to our practice and our life. Just letting you know, this podcast was actually released secretly a week before the public release. If you'd like to get your hands on this podcast or YouTube classes a week earlier than everybody else, all you need to do is head over to livingin.com, subscribe to the mailing list, and get an exclusive sneak preview delivered fresh into your mailbox a week before everybody else. Thanks for joining us, Bernie. It is great to see you again. Before we get into the meaty, juicy part of this podcast, I'd really love it if you could tell us a little bit about what inspired your yin yoga journey. Well, that was a bit of serendipity. Uh, it's nice to see you too, Truth, and to talk to you again. Um, yeah, way back in around 2002, 2003, I was into the peak of my Ashtanga career and as an Ashtanga teacher, part of the practice was to adjust people, to put them into poses. But I didn't really trust my own sensibility of how far was I pushing. So I took a couple of trainings in Thai uh, massage therapy. And in the second, the advanced training, uh, every morning that the teacher was Saul David Ray, every morning he'd give a yoga class. And at the ninth day, of the 10 days, he kind of ran out of ideas. So he said, why don't we just do a yin class? And I hadn't heard of yin yoga then, neither had anybody else. So I said, sure, we'll try that. And it was very different than anything I'd ever experienced before. And the next day, the, the uh, training ended, and I was flying home. This was in Santa Barbara in California. I had a couple of hours to kill. And I was just walking along State Street there, and I saw a little yoga studio. I walked inside, and there was a little bookshelf with books and DVDs. And one DVD was some, by some woman named Sarah Powers called Yin Yoga. I thought, oh, this is what Saul did to us yesterday. So I bought the DVD. Actually, it was a VHS. I should correct myself. At that time, it was a VHS. <laughs> and I brought it home. And I, I did that practice every day for about three months. And I was amazed how quickly it helped my Ashtanga practice. And so I resolved I had to meet this woman. And she was coming up to a yoga conference in Seattle that May. So I went down to Seattle from Vancouver in Canada and uh, took her workshop over that weekend and fell more in love with it. And through Sarah, I met Paul Grilly, and through Paul just deepened my, my knowledge of this. I, they, uh, they never did it again, but they offered a 10-day combined training, both Sarah and Paul together in California. So I took that and it was just phenomenal. Wow. And it was in one of the poses during Paul's class, I remember being a little distracted, wondering, this is about 2004, who has the URL in so I made a little mental note. And when I got home, I checked. Nobody had it yet. So I thought, well, I better grab that in case somebody else does. And my intention was to give it to Paul Grilly, but he already had paulgrilly.com. So I ended up just keeping that and it kind of just grew from there. So yeah. it's kind of serendipity that got me into it, but it, I just fell in love with it. I think we're all very grateful that you did end up getting that yinyoga.com URL. I know it's been an amazing and informative resource to go and look at whenever I had a question about yin yoga and that forum on there is is incredible. You mentioned that you began your yoga career in Ashtanga. 
Um, I think this is a quite a common thread for a lot of us older generation yogis. We found our way into it and it was quite a physically satisfying practice, quite deep practice. And we had the perception that this was going to lead to the highest degree of flexibility. And that was the ultimate misguided goal, of course, being more flexible as a yogi. Now, you mentioned that when you started practicing yin yoga, that you found that you went so much deeper but it seems that we're doing almost the opposite of what we're doing in Ashtanga. What's actually happening in our tissues in yin yoga? Well, the example I used, uh, and by the way, I started with Shivananda through okay. a teacher named Shakti Mai, and then discovered Ashtanga and from there flow yoga and all the more yang forms. Uh, but there was one particular pose called Prasarita Padottanasana A, which is the wide-legged standing forward fold where you're supposed to bring your head to the floor. And I just couldn't get my head to the floor. And I'd been doing Mysore practice for about five years at that point. And yet my head and the floor still were like in two different time zones. They're quite far apart. But as I said, after three months of doing the yin that Sarah was teaching me, my head was on the floor. And I realized what was stopping me were not the muscles necessarily, but the fascial bags around the muscles and in the joints. And when I targeted those tissues, I increased my range of motion much more quickly than the young practice. And so through Paul's explanation, I realized young is, it can open you up. You certainly can get more range of motion with a young active type practice. But if your intention is to increase your range of motion more dramatically, a yin style will do it faster because it targets the deeper connective tissues that restrict a lot of people's movements. So it wasn't that I was really having short tight muscles. It was the fascial bags around the muscles and in the joints and the ligaments that were restraining me. Huh. So we're working with the fascial connective tissue in a very different way then, because I must assume within the Ashtanga and the Vinyasa practices, there must be a degree of connective tissue work as that tissue is integrated deeply within the muscle and the movement of the body. So what is it that makes yin so special? Is it the longer holds? Yeah, it seems to do a better job. Like you can target certain tissues of the body, but you can never isolate those tissues. So I can target, say, my biceps when I'm doing curls with kettlebells or something. But even though I'm targeting my biceps, my triceps are getting a workout too, as my deltoids are and my pectorals and my stomach muscles. The whole body is involved with any movement. So even though I intend to get stronger biceps, the whole system is being affected. So in the same way, I can target my muscles, but muscles are 30% fascia. Inside the muscle cells themselves, there's collagen around the outside of the muscle cell. There's a collagen wrapper, it's called the endomycin. And then these are like tubes within tubes within tubes. There's, there's layers and layers of fascia wrapping the muscle bundles and then the muscle itself. So you can't separate the muscle from the fascia. But inside a muscle, 70% is muscle cell, 30% is fascia, or connective tissue. So we, we target that in our young practice. We're making it stronger and over time we can make it longer. And muscles love rhythmic, repetitive movement. They get filled with blood, they get pumped up. When a muscle's cold, it's maybe 70% water. But once you're really pumped up, that muscle becomes 90 to 95% water. Fascia is about 10% water, depending on where it is and what it is. Uh, it can be 10 to 30%. So it is a different construction. It has a different intention. So the way we exercise the tissues will affect them to greater or lesser degrees. And it turns out if you want to increase kind of the length and the strength of fascial tissues, especially the, the endomycin, the paramycin, the epimycin around a muscle, or the fascia that makes up the ligaments, the tendons, and the joint capsules, these respond better to a static long-held stress as opposed to a rhythmic repetitive stress. Yeah. It seems the body will lay down more collagen onto those tissues when you apply that type of a stress to it than whether it's more rhythmic. Is it bad to hold your muscles at this length for long periods of time? Not if they're relaxed. If the muscle's not trying to contract, it won't use up all its, its energy and then go into cramping and spasms. So in yin yoga, we often say relax the muscles because you're going to be here a while. And we don't want to keep the muscle engaged for three, four, or five minutes. An engaged muscle that doesn't release, there's a technical medical term for that. It's called tetany from which we get the word tetanus. If you have that course, infection, yeah. it makes your muscles go into tetany. The yeah. non-technical term is a cramp. And we yeah. all know that we don't like cramps. The muscle's yeah. engaged and it won't release. It's painful. And that can cut off blood flow and other bad things. So we want the muscles to be relaxed while we're in the pose. 
And that does two things. One, it's not so energetically costly, the muscles can soften, but also when the muscles are relaxed, then more of the stress can go into the deeper tissues, the, the joint capsules and the ligaments and so forth. So considering we're working with the soft tissue then, and a lot of us in the past would have had an experience of a soft tissue injury, like rolling their ankle or twisting their knee. Is there a point within our yin yoga practice, we exert so much stress that we start to move back towards one of these kinds of injuries. And then if that's the case, then is it normal for us to feel this little bit of degree of anxiety or be a bit tentative when working with our yin practice? Sure. And this is a legitimate fear. You can do too much of anything. But just because you can do too much of something doesn't mean you should never do that. And this is where I come into my favorite saying, beware the binary. A lot of therapists, doctors, and yoga teachers think, well, because you can overstress a ligament and damage it, therefore we should never stress a ligament. But you can apply the same logic to a muscle. You can overstretch a muscle. But that doesn't mean you should never stretch a muscle. Hmm. It just means you have to take care of it. And when you're getting to that limit, usually the body gives you warning signs. They're called, it's called pain. You get a little tweak. And if you ignore that little tweak, eventually you'll become a big tweak. And if you ignore that big tweak, eventually you become a significant injury. But these connective tissues are very strong. It's unlikely that a long-held static stress is going to come anywhere near the tolerance of these tissues to being damaged. You're more likely to break the muscle before you'll break a ligament or a tendon because the mm. muscles are a much softer tissue. So when you roll an ankle... That is a dynamic, sudden stress that puts more stress than the tissues can tolerate. Most, almost all joint injuries happen in that way, in a dynamic movement. That's why it happens to people playing sports. You know, you're playing football, you cut and run, and in that one moment, you might put 3,000 Newton stress into your knee joint. Well, wow. Well, the ACL, the anterior crucial ligament, or the PCL is actually the posterior crucial ligament, is one of the strongest ligaments in the body it can withstand about 2,500 newtons of force. But if you put 3,000 newtons of force in there, it may snap. Hmm. Well, when you stand with a hyperextended knee in, say, King Dancer, hmm. uh, uh, Nata Raja pose, an average 120-pound woman might put 30 pounds of stress into that knee. So that's like, say, 300 newtons of stress. That, that ligament can probably take eight times that. So... In my experience, there's no yoga pose that's ever going to come close to stressing these joint tissues near their tolerance levels. It doesn't happen in static situations. If you jump off the stairs from three stairs up and land, and you're slightly hyperextended with your legs, then you might put a lot of stress in it, and that would break the knee. Unless you're very old, like someone in their 70s and 80s, or you've got a a condition like Ehlers-Danlos, Marfan syndrome, where your connective tissue is just genetically different and weaker, the vast majority of people will not hurt themselves in a static stress. If they did, they'd hurt themselves walking up and down stairs, getting in and out of cars. But always is always wrong. So for some people, maybe they tweaked their ankle a few times already, and now they're in a pose or tweaked their knees, now they're in a pose, and suddenly that was the last straw. Yeah, so it can happen. Absolutely. I think that's one thing a lot of us don't realize is, as you said, the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, you could be working at work and then suddenly lift up a box and and hurt your back, but you discount the the lifetime of other activity that led up to that point. So it may not necessarily be that work injury. You mentioned that you're more likely to injure muscle tissue before connective tissue, but doesn't muscle tissue heal quite quickly? That's the trade-off. Muscle can damage more quickly and can heal more quickly. A torn muscle you know, might take a few weeks to a few months. A stretched ligament, like you roll your ankle. This happened to me once in my 30s. I was jumping on a trampoline with my kids, and I rolled my right ankle. And that ankle was very loose. And there's no medical technique or exercise that we have that can shrink the ligaments other than don't use it. That's why you put things in casts once in a while, just don't use it. And over time, the body naturally shrinks things. But for years, that ankle was very unstable. Now in my mid-60s, that ankle is very stiff again because, you know, it does over the decades start to shrink around. But once you've stretched it, it can take months and years for it to kind of go back to its original strength. So we don't overdo it. I don't want to stretch my muscles too. If I tore a muscle, that's not convenient. So you have to pay attention to these signals the body's giving us. The little tweaks, the little bits of pain. 
Hmm. And in my Ashtanga practice, I was very much a believer in no pain, no gain. Hmm. After a few injuries, I started to realize this is not serving me very well. <laughs> I think I'll adopt the Eastern view of no pain, no pain. Yeah, it's amazing. I think every time I used to walk out of my Ashtanga practice, I'd walk out shaking, you know, have difficulty just carrying my groceries home after the practice. And through no fault of the teachers, I just, I think I got that idea from those around me and the perception that my body should look like theirs and I should be able to get there. And it took me a long time to figure out there's perhaps a better way of doing this. Um, you mentioned there was different conditions of the connective tissue. Is this the same as being hypermobile? Yes, but there's many causes of hypermobility. I like to group them into three big chunks because there's a lot of fear in the yin community, not necessarily within the community, but outside the community, that yin yoga should not be done by somebody who's hypermobile. Mm. And again, that makes it binary. If you're mm. hypermobile, never do yin yoga. That sounds very black and white. Mm. But it depends what's causing your hypermobility. So in my view, there are three broad areas of hypermobility. One could be a connective tissue disorder. You could have something called Ehlers-Danlos or Marfan syndrome. And these are cases where the collagen protein that make up the majority of our fascial fibers, they have a certain crimp to it. They're, they're kind of wavy, like a letter W, a whole bunch of letter Ws tied together. And some have less crimp, some have more crimp. The more crimp, both the stronger it is and the more elastic it is. We can talk about elasticity later. But So some people, just because of this genetic lottery that they won or lost, they don't have as much resilience in the collagen fibers. Mm. So they could easily go too far and hurt themselves. Mm. That doesn't mean they shouldn't stretch. They just have to be careful that they could stretch easily too far. So mm. that's one type. Doctors used to think this is a fairly rare condition. Maybe one in 5,000 people had Erlodamost syndrome, but now we're starting to realize it's more of a spectrum. It's not kind of black or white there either. And maybe 10% of the population or more might have some form of a genetic difference in their collagen. The second set is somebody who has injured themselves. Say you've rolled your ankle and now everything is stretched out. You're hypermobile now because of that accident. And you'll have to be careful as well. You don't want to go too far and injure yourself again. The third cause of hypermobility is just the natural shape of your bones. For instance, the elbow. What stops us from opening our arm further than straight is just the connection of the end of the ulna, which is called the olecranon, and the socket and the humerus called the olecranon fossa. These two bones fit together like a hand in a glove. Hmm. And when they actually come into full contact, you've reached the limit of how far you can open your elbow. Now, for some people, they can't get to straight. Their electronon is actually too thick, or their little fossa, the, sh the little cave that the electron goes in is too shallow. And no matter what they do, they just cannot open their arm to 180 degrees. Hmm. And nobody tries to correct them. Well, they, they may say, oh, straighten your arm, and just say, I can't. But there's other people that have a very deep electron fossa and a very shallow electron, and they go past 180 degrees. They're hyperextending the elbow. But in all cases, everyone goes to where their bones hit. This is where the bones hit on the bones, and that's a natural stopping place. But for one person, they're hypermobile, and the third person's hypermobile. But it's not dangerous for that third person because they're just going to where the bones hit, as everyone does. Mm -hmm. But it looks weird, and if I tried to do that with my arm, I'd break my arm. Hmm. So that means a lot of people think, well, I can't do that, and because I don't want my student to hurt themselves, I'm not going to let them do that. Hmm. Now, if that, again, was an injury, maybe they'd be right to back off a bit. But the injury would tell them, it'd be hurting. If it's a connective tissue disorder, yes, again, they have to take care. But the majority of the people who open their elbow that far is just the shape of their bones. And they're not at danger at all of hurting themselves. Hmm. So should people go past a, a theoretically normal range of motion? It depends. What are they feeling? If it hurts, don't do it. If it doesn't hurt and they have no condition and they've been doing it all their lives, even before they started doing yoga, then... I mean, just leave them alone. They're just doing what the body will give them. Huh. I think this is a really beautiful messaging system of the body. As you say, keep coming back to whether or not you feel pain in a position. And if you do, there's potentially something that maybe is not quite right about it. And in that, there seems to be a lot of freedom as a student. And then also once you teach this to your students, as a teacher too, to know that you're teaching quite safely. But is there ever an instance where we could be in a position maybe going too far and not feel pain? It is possible. Pain is not a great indicator, but it's the best one we have. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of like democracy. Winston Churchill once said, it's a terrible way to run a government, but it's the best way we have. It's better than all the rest. <laughs> It'd be nice if we just had little LEDs on our forehead that would light up by saying, you know, green, go ahead, yellow, careful, red, stop doing that. Yeah. But instead, we got pain. And pain can be caused by physical conditions in the body, but pain can also be caused by mental states of mind, psychological things, or by sociological things, your environment. And so pain is not the most reliable tool we have for diagnosing when we're too far. So I usually like to say there's three times you have to watch for pain. One is while you're in the pose itself. Does it hurt? Is there anything sharp, burning, stabbing, tingly, electrical? You have to spell it out because a lot of students are not used to paying attention to these sensations. But sometimes you don't feel pain until you come out of the pose. And then you realize, "Uh uh-oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) But sometimes you don't feel the pain until the next day or two. Usually I get that with tingling sensations. If I open my right arm too far to the side in a twist, I, through experience now, I know I'm actually compressing a nerve bundle going down the arm called the brachial plexus. Hmm. But I don't notice that right away. I notice it the next day. Hmm. So sometimes the pain won't show up while you're in the pose. So you have to pay attention. Does it hurt while you're in the pose, when you come out of the pose, over the next day or two? And if so, over the next day or two, you have to think back, what was I doing that may have contributed to that? But sometimes our biology doesn't give us any clue that we've hurt ourselves until we reach some final edge and then things break. So pain is not a foolproof signaling system, but it's still the best one we have. Hmm. You said something interesting then. Pain when you come out of the pose. Is this the same as that feeling when you first come out of a position and you feel a bit of achiness, almost pain, and then it kind of fades and later on you don't really feel it or notice it anymore? Is this the same thing as what you're talking about? Not necessarily, because again, it's not black or white. There's a, there's a, a spectrum of pain. Mm-hmm. Some therapists say that you actually have two scales. So some people, when you interview them, they have a discomfort scale, mm. and then they have a pain scale. Once mm-hmm. things get really uncomfortable, now they'll classify it as painful. But until then, it's not painful. It's just you know, it's hard to stay here. This is really challenging. It's uncomfortable, but it's not yet painful. Other people just have a pain scale from zero to 10. Mm-hmm. And if you're feeling something like two or three, and through your life experience, you realize this hurts, but it hurts good. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's kind of a dull, achy sensation that you know, this is challenging, but I need to be here. So part of the psychological aspect of pain is, let's suppose you, you twisted your ankle on a trampoline and it hurt. And for the next couple of weeks, you're kind of limping a bit because you want to take weight off that ankle. But after six months, the ankle is fine. But you're still walking with a bit of a limp because there's a fear of re-hurting it. And then that fear may make the ankle painful, even though structurally it's back to normal. But now you get a guarding sensation where the, mm. the brain is starting to say, oh, let's not do that again. Mm. So the brain is kind of sending false pain signals right. to protect you. Um, I used to get this with my, again, my left arm. I got a tightness in, one, in my deltoid muscle where it attaches. And I damaged that once. On a, I fell and overstretched it. But now, years after the fall, I can still feel a bit of a a pain there. But I know it's just a guarding thing. So if I just hold and stretch through it, and it hurts good, and then I release, okay, now I know that I'm actually stretching out that contracted tissue. Mm. But again, this this comes through experience of paying attention, noticing what happens while you're in the pose the next day. Is it really bad? Or is it just, you know, this sort of psychological guarding thing that's happening? So as I say, pain is a bit mysterious. You have been listening to Living Yin, a podcast by Truth Robinson. We're talking about different ways of stressing and stretching the body. And in particular, we're talking about the yin style, which is very passive form of stretching. You're lying on the ground, long, deep holds, uh, a lower amount of intensity. Um, how does this differ to the more dynamic forms? I think it's called like functional range conditioning. Is, is there a huge difference between the two different styles of stretching or stressing? I'm not familiar with that particular term, yeah. but dynamic stretching, there's, there's a lot of research on dynamic and passive stretching. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's also a, a rebirth of something called pyelometrics. Pyelometrics is kind of the bouncing type stretching. 
Mm. Where you're approaching end range and then you kind of bounce up and down. And during the 80s and 90s, that was all the aerobic craze, is bouncing mm. exercises. Mm. And then we realized it was hurting a lot of people, so I don't bounce. And now we're coming back that in certain ranges of bouncing and for short periods of time can actually improve the springiness, the elasticity of our mm. fascial tissues. Mm. So there are lots of different ways of studying this. Um, a woman in Scandinavia, I think she was Swedish. She might have been uh, Norwegian, Maria Moltebach. She did a, her PhD thesis on this. It's if you just Google Maria Moltebach and, and stretching thesis. In that thesis, it's about 100 pages or so, she summarizes a lot of these different types of stretching from a purely scientific point of view. So it's not coming from a yogic perspective, but mm. it's comparing, you know, kind of like... Uh, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation type of stress and release and stress and release and working the Golgi tendon organs to tone down the neurological tone of the muscle. That's one way to get the muscles to relax and stretch out more. There's more dynamic things where you hold the stresses for about 20, 30 seconds. That's the way that's studied the most. Yin yoga hasn't been studied as such because most of the, the researchers will have people do like a hamstring stretch. That seems to be a very targeted area for research. They'll have someone in a seated forward fold and they'll hold the pose for 20 seconds. And they might do that five or six times. And they'll track them over seven or eight weeks and see if they've actually increased their range of motion. Well, we do that a little bit in, in our regular young yoga classes, but we're not just doing it for 20 seconds. We're doing it for an hour and a half and we're repeating these things over and over. And sometimes you'll hold it for a minute or so. So what's actually being studied is not yogic type of stretching. So there's lots of different fields of study and stretching. Some researchers conclude that stretching doesn't actually lengthen the muscles. The muscles hmm. do not get longer. Hmm. But rather what happens is the neurological connection to the muscle tones down. Hmm. Like everyone has muscle tone. Uh, we like this term. You want to have you know, tone body. So if you look at your bicep, for instance, an average person might have 15% of the muscle cells in there active at any one time. That's a tone. If you're more toned, it might be 18% or 20%. And then you'll see your muscle bulge a little bit because more muscle fibers are engaged. But that's going to restrict you from stretching out the arm because you've got those muscle cells resisting letting go. Some people have less tone. They only have 10% of the muscle fibers engaged. And that may make it easier to stretch out. So one philosophy is yoga and stretching simply changes the brain's interaction with the muscles and just turns them off more. And that allows more range of motion. And for a while, that was kind of the predominant theory. But then we're realizing, well, there's a lot more going on in what activates the muscles or not. It could be that. It could be the stretch receptors inside the muscles are turning on as well to protect the muscle from being overstretched. It could be hormones. It could be the fascial bags are being contracted because there's little cells inside the fascia called myofibroblasts that if you visualize a spider sitting in the middle of a spider web and then he pulls all the legs in, that tightens the fascia. Mm -hmm. And in certain situations, our immune system sends out signals that tell our fascia to contract. I don't know if you've ever noticed if you had a flu or a cold, you feel stiff and achy. Oh yeah, very much so. Well, that is the immune system telling us to Tighten up, because when you're tightened up, you're, you're one thing, you're not going to go off and run a marathon or do your normal Mysore practice. You're going to save your energy because the immune system needs energy to fight the virus. And so the body naturally makes us feel tired and sick so that we don't use the energy to do our normal daily stuff and we let that energy go to build more killer T cells and beta cells and so forth. The way, it, the, way the immune system does that is through a, a substance called TGF-beta-1. And don't worry, that won't be on the test. <laughs> TGF beta 1 is what creates more of these myofibroblasts in the fascia and stimulates them to turn on and contract. But the immune system produces TGF beta 1 also because it stimulates more white blood cells and killer T cells. And so that has a double effect. It produces more killing cells, but it also tells our, our, our fascia to contract. So another reason why we might be short and tight has nothing to do with stretching. It may be our fascia has just become contracted because our immune system is overactive. Hmm. It could be hormonal. It turns out in our fascia, there are hormone receptors for sex hormones like estrogen, which is why some women throughout their, their monthly periods, 
they're tied in the other parts. Just around ovulation time, they produce more estrogen and that causes the fascia to tighten up. And then at other periods of time, closer to their menstruation period, they're looser because hmm. everything is starting to flow. Hmm. So there's another reason that we might be stiff and tight. This could be a hormonal interaction with the fascia. It could be the state of the water. It could be, there's so many things that are responsible, but it could be also that your muscles are just short. Hmm. So now hmm. we come back to the full cycle that yes, sometimes muscles do shrink hmm. and we can make them longer by stressing them. And when we stress them, they put more muscle um, the activating part of a muscle is called a sarcomere. You can mm. actually put them on the end of the muscle to make the muscle longer. Mm. So it turns out we can make the muscles longer. Mm. We can also relax them. We can also affect our immune system. We can also affect our hormonal system. And it's a very complicated area. What I found really fascinating then was you were describing a systemic intelligence in the body, the body's ability to react to its the sensory inputs of what's happening and it's so dynamic in the way that it can interact and change, not only just in the muscles, but also in the connective tissue as well. I notice that when I'm in different poses, there is a degree of like holding on sometimes. I find myself like a little bit tight and I allow myself to mentally and physically relax. Is this the same as storing traumas in your body or resisting the pose mentally more than physically? The famous issues in the tissues. Yeah. Yeah, the, our emotions are embodied. They're in the tissues. They're not just neural connection in the brain, although they may be there as well. But if somebody gets, say, rear-ended in a car accident and they hear the squeak of the brakes and then they feel the thing and they get whiplash, well, their body may put them in a protective mode where their shoulders are kind of always hunched and they're constantly in a braced function. This is like a post-traumatic bracing because they're always expecting that. Or if they hear a loud noise, they automatically flinch and they come into that bracing thing. Now, that requires initially the muscles to contract to hold us in that shoulder forward hunched position. But after a while, the shoulders, that uses up a lot of energy. And the body's gonna say, well, let's not use the muscles to hold us here. Let's remodel the fascia. And the fascia take over that. So when people complain, I've got really tight shoulders or stiff neck or chronic stiffness in the lower back. You know, for the first couple of weeks, that might be the muscles going into spasm. But after a few months, it's the fascia has been remodeled around that. So the muscles can actually relax now. But it's the myofibroblasts that have taken over the job of keeping everything contracted. And eventually the collagen just gets remodeled. So even the myofibroblasts don't have to be contracted. It's just we've rewrapped everything into that kind of contracted position. To get out of that, it's going to take a much more work because it's not just a matter of relaxing. Like in the first week or two after the accidents, you might have to remind yourself to relax. Let the muscles go back to your normal posture. But after a few months, you're going to have to work through remodeling the fascia to do that. So you're going to have to do a lot more reclining over a bolster type exercises mm -hmm. to open up the shoulders and the heart. So I'm not sure if you've read anything about this, but will this allow us to then help to release our emotional conditioning? So as we start to work with the poses and work with the practice, we'll start to notice that the holding on, the physical holding on, and that'll help us start to release the, the imprint of these traumas in the past when we've noticed that different times that we are holding on and we're still holding on. Like you said, when you hear the screech of the brake and you feel your muscles tightening up, will this allow us to release those uh, blind emotional reactions to that situation, to release those traumas from our body? There's no proof that it happens. So it's a speculation that's fairly mm, okay. common in the yoga tradition. So mm. it's kind of anecdotal evidence. Mm -hmm. But there is, a, there is a fellow close to you. I don't know if you know uh, Blind Tiger Yoga. No, I haven't heard of him. Okay. That's, um, I'm sorry, I'm just blanking on his name for a second. Wonderful guy. Uh -huh. um, he, he, he's an ex-vet in the Australian Army, mm -hmm. uh, served time in Afghanistan, came back and got into yoga and is using yoga for PTSD survivors in the, the vet community. And his experience is definitely that this can be helpful. So definitely there's a lot of anecdote that says we can kind of remodel the trauma through the relaxation. He uses yin yoga as well as Tristan, <laughs> Tristan's his name, uh, through just relaxing into this, this position, Tristan Rose. So we've been talking about stretching, stretching the muscles, stretching the connective tissue, but I've noticed in, in myself through various times of my life and definitely in my students as well, that we've had 
issues maybe with uh, sciatic nerve pain. Now, is it a bad thing to be stretching the sciatic nerve or is it a bad thing to be stretching nerves in general? Well, you know, it's not black and white. Mm. Nerves are designed to glide. They should mm. slide through the fascial boundaries around the nerve. All the nerves are surrounded by the perineurial sheets, which are kind of fascia, and that allows them to glide through, through the sheath. The nerves can stretch a little bit, like 2 or 3% is fine. But once you start to stretch a nerve more than like 5 to 10%, then you can start to interfere with the nerve transmission, the actual mm. functioning of the nerve. And nerves have nerves touching them too. So nerves have their own sensors that you can sense nerve pain through them. Mm. Now the sciatic nerve is also designed to glide. Mm. If something is stopping it from gliding, like there's an adhesion somewhere, then it will try to glide for a bit, but if it can't glide, then it may start to stretch, and that may create some problems. Hmm. But there's two big general causes of sciatica, and it's important to know which cause you have before you try to treat it, because the treatment for one cause can actually make the other cause worse. One of the main causes is discogenic. You've probably heard of a herniated disc, or colloquially mm-hmm. called a bulging disc. Yeah. or a slip disc, they don't actually slip, but they don't. sometimes the, the jelly in the jelly donut can start to be pushed out to the, the back or to the side of the, of the donut. And if that bulge happens to be right at a nerve root in the lower lumbar, then that can compress the nerve root that becomes the sciatic nerve. Hmm. And for a lot of people, flexions or some twists, depending on where the bulge is, can make that symptom worse. Hmm. So a, a therapist may do a slump test for someone with sciatica. Just have them sit in a chair and just slump over. And if that makes their pain worse in their, the leg, they'll probably think, okay, you've got a discogenic sciatica. Now we want to figure out how can we push the jelly back into the donut. Hmm. And if flexion pushes the jelly out of the donut, extension should push it inward. Hmm. Or if twist to the right make it worse, then maybe twist to the left. Hmm. So we'll try to figure out what, what provokes the pain. Hmm. And then what can we do about that? So for a lot of people, extensions, back bends may be a nice way to cure discogenic sciatica, but flexions may make it worse. The other major cause of sciatica could be piriformis sciatica. And this is where the sciatic nerve is, it's kind of incorrectly rooted. Normally the nerves go on the inside of a, of a joint, for instance, in the knee. We have nerves that go down the back of the leg and behind the back of the knee and into the calf. And that way when you flex the knee, you're not stretching the nerve, you're just folding it up. Hmm. But there's two cases where the body put the nerve on the outside of the joint. The first is most famous, and that's in the elbow, Hmm. funny bone. Mm -hmm. The humerus Hmm. nerve goes on the outside, and it's exposed there, and if you bang your elbow, you'll feel it. Well, the second kind of misrooting is the sciatic nerve around the outside of the pelvis. Hmm. It goes just underneath the sciatic, sorry, the piriformis muscle. And if your piriformis is a bit tight, Every time you maybe flex the hips or do a strong external rotation, that may compress onto the, uh, onto the static nerve. 5% of the time it goes through the piriformis muscle mm. and 10% of the time it goes above it. Mm. So a tight piriformis may also cause it. So you may want, if you've got piriformis syndrome, they do a test called FAIR. That's an acronym, F-A-I-R. F stands for flexion. A is for adduction, bringing the knee across the midline of the body, and IR is internal rotation. If you internally rotate the leg, this may cause the piriformis muscle to stretch and press down on the sciatic nerve. So if you have somebody sitting and they cross their legs and they wrap their toe under the calf, if that creates more sciatic symptoms, then they may feel, well, you've got a tight piriformis, let's stretch that out. One of the ways to stretch it out is actually the same thing that makes it worse. You would wait until the static episode has calmed down, and then you do the fair movements, flexion, adduction, internal rotation, to stretch out the piriformis. Mm. But if you've got discogenic, that flexion will make it worse. So you, you want to know what's causing the sciatica before you start to do a prescription to fix it. Mm. Another way to do it is something called neuromobilization. Now, sometimes an adhesion can grow anywhere along the track of the nerve. As I mentioned, the nerves are designed to glide. Hmm. And there's a couple of Australian researchers, I think a guy in New Zealand, David Butler is one of them. And they worked out that if you manually glide the nerve, they believe that the nerve itself can secrete some sort of enzymes that can dissolve away impingements, whether it's scar tissue or 
a bone spur. We don't have proof of this yet, but the anecdotal evidence is that it works. So you can do a, a neuromobilization or a spinal flossing, if you like. Mm. One of the ways to do that is to do a cat-cow type position. Mm -hmm. But as you're doing cat-cow, you're moving your hips back towards your heels and then coming back forward again. Mm -hmm. And you want to kind of time this. So as you go back, you're actually looking up. And that's going to draw the whole sciatic tract down the backside of the body. As you come forward, draw your chin to your chest, round your back up, and kind of even lean into it. And that'll draw the sciatic tract up the body along with mm -hmm. the spinal cord. So mm -hmm. as you repeat this, you're actually gliding the whole nerve. You're reintroducing movement, mobility into the nerve, which seems to help dissolve away the impingements and, and even with um, piriformis syndrome, seems to make it better. So it would feel less like a stretch then because a stretch is pulling at both ends. And so this would be more of a gliding through the body. So probably wouldn't feel like much then. Yeah, you want to release one end and pull the other end. Huh. So the normal cat-cow doesn't do that. It pulls both ends at the same time or releases both ends ah, at the same time. Yep. So you want to move the hips back, look up, move the hips forward, look down. So you're literally kind of pulling it up and down. You get the same with the arms. Uh, people who have carpal tunnel syndrome, if they extend, say, the right arm out to the right and lower the fingers, but bring the right ear to the right shoulder or bring the right chin to the right shoulder, that's pulling the whole nerve track to, towards the fingers. But then you do the opposite. You bring your left ear to the shoulder and bring your right fingers to your right shoulder. That pulls it all to the left. And then hmm. you repeat that. You're gliding the nerve. And this medial nerve track can move about 10 centimeters. It's amazing how far you can actually wow. glide that nerve. And so different pains in the body. Sciatic pain is one. But some people have this pain that's all over their body. And it's called fibromyalgia. Is yin yoga something that is going to be good for them or to exacerbate their condition? Well, again, there's no studies of yin yoga in fibromyalgia, so we can only speculate. Mm -hmm. So we, we can create a hypothesis, and then hopefully one day somebody will research this. <laughs> we have anecdotal evidence that people with fibromyalgia find yin yoga effective. I had one woman who came to me at the end of a, a class I used to teach every Sunday night, and she came up and she, she didn't have fibromyalgia, but she had lower back pain. And she said that she'd been coming to my class for a year now and she has no back pain at all. And I gave her a hug. We were all very happy that she's feeling well. And as she walked away, I had to wonder, I wonder if it was the yin yoga that helped her or was it just coming to class once a week, getting away from her husband, getting out of mm. the house, being mm. with other people of like minds, just breathing. Maybe it was the Shavasana at the end. Maybe it was the opening meditation. I can't say that yin yoga cured her lower back pain. In the same way, I've had students with fibromyalgia say the same thing, that it helps it help them. But I don't know if it's the yin yoga that's helped them, or just the yoga that's helped them, or just doing something different once a week or twice a week in their life that helps them calm down. So we definitely can say that this can be helpful for many people. But exactly why? We don't have the scientific studies to say, yeah, it's a long-held static stress. It may be but there may be so many other things going on. Mm. And it may just been a coincidence. Mm. And it may be for some people, it makes their fibromyalgia worse. So again, there's mm. no medicine that works for everybody. Mm. So you have to kind of try this. I mean, in general, motion is the lotion of life. Mm. You need to move. Mm. And anything that makes you afraid of movement is gonna make you worse. And people with a variety of pains and illnesses, they become afraid of moving. And so by not moving, their whole body gets shrink-wrapped, which makes it harder to move, which makes it worse, which makes them afraid to move, and you get in this kind of a death spiral. Hmm. So just by getting up and doing a practice, yin or yang, can be very therapeutic. Hmm. Now, whether yin is better because we target the fascial tissues, my personal speculation it is, because we're not going for the muscles now, we're going for the, the vast fascial areas of the body. Hmm. And personally, I believe that's probably going to be more effective at these fascial problems than the young practices, but we have no proof for that. It's just speculation and anecdote. And so coming back to your students that had been coming along to your class and definitely had gotten benefit. Yes, there is that uh, physical aspect to it too. But as you said, potentially it could have been, you know, having a break from their family or just getting out of the headspace for a little while. Is there something happening to your nervous system in yin yoga? Yeah. Modern medicine is evolving to a less mechanical view of health and well-being to a more holistic view. 
in the 70s, it began with something called the biopsychosocial model of health. Now, it took many decades for this to take off. I guess it wasn't until the 2000s that really this started to get into the textbooks. But we now know that health, which comes from an old English word, by the way, which means whole. To be healthy is to be whole. Hmm. And we know that health is not just physical. It's not just the biological. For instance, most people have bulging discs. We talked about herniated discs. Hmm. 30% of 20-year-olds, if you give them an MRI, they'll have a bulging disc. Wow. 50% of 40-year-olds. 70% of 60-year-olds. 86% of 80-year-olds have a bulging disc, but they have no pain. So they have all the biological factors that this should hurt, but they don't have pain. So pain is not just biology gone awry. Sometimes it's psychology. As I said before, it could be uh, an expectation that you were hurt once before, and now the brain is just overreacting. It could be sociological. There's a famous study in the 1990s, I think it was, of workers in the Boeing factory in Seattle. And they interviewed thousands and thousands of workers, and they wanted to correlate the type of job people had with low back pain. So they interviewed people working in the office, sitting at a desk all day, people in the factory standing up, people driving delivery trucks, pilots sitting for long periods of time. And they found the only correlation to what these people did in their, their jobs and low back pain was whether or not the people liked their jobs. Hmm. If they hated their jobs, they had lots of low back pain. So it had nothing to do with the physicality of the job. And it wasn't biological. It was something to do with the work environment. I hated going to work and that created the pain. Interesting. So there's all sorts of things that trigger pain. And so to say that yoga affects us psychologically, certainly life affects us psychologically. And yoga can be a time to get out of the daily routines of life and adopt a different way. Hmm. I've heard it said that beginners shouldn't do yin yoga because it's a bit too challenging. Hmm. Personally, I love beginners to do yin yoga because in yin yoga, you have time. You have time to pay attention, to notice what's going on, to notice your breath, to notice sensations, to really tune into your body. I mean, most of us in our culture, we're, we're, turn, we're taught to tune out our body. If you get a little tweak or pain, we'll just take an Advil, ibuprofen, you know, some aspirin. And so let's just cover over what's the problem and just mask it like putting masking tape on your car dashboard that says engine problem. I don't want to see that red light. I'm just going to put duct tape over it. So now I don't have to be worried about it. <laughs> but that doesn't really help you when the engine needs attention. So the same thing with our bodies physically. We need to pay attention to what we're feeling. And in a young class where you're just learning to do a vinyasa flow, you only are in the pose for a minute, and the teacher's telling you where your hands should be and where your knees should be and where your feet should be, and then you're out to the next pose. Mm. You have no time to pay attention to what you're actually feeling. Mm. You're worried about the external parts. Mm. Well, in yin yoga, you got four, five, six, some poses, 10 minutes. And we don't care about how you look in the pose. We care about how you're feeling in the pose. So these little mini meditations give you a chance to introspect, to be able to figure out what's going on inside. And that has a whole number of uh, psychosocial benefits. I'm a really big advocate of yin yoga as well, as you know, and as a consequence can get a little bit addicted to it at times. But is there a point where we can do too much yin yoga? Yeah, you can do too much of anything. But how much is too much for you is not mm. necessarily how much there's too much for somebody else. Because again, you have to pay attention. At one extreme, think of people who wear braces. Mm -hmm. Now, a brace on their teeth is a long-held static stress. That's yin. Mm -hmm. They don't take the braces off every night. They're mm -hmm. wearing these braces for months, for years. Mm -hmm. Some people wear them three or four years. It takes that long to change the shape of the bones. But they're doing it every day. Hmm. Think of the fact people who sit in an office. They're sitting for eight hours a day. That's yin. And they're constantly flexing their spine. Uh, people who work all day at a teller's job or a cashier. For eight hours a day, they're standing on their feet, putting a stress on their arches of their feet. That's a yin stress. So we do yin stresses all the time, every day for hours. And we do it every day, with maybe Saturday and Sunday off. So to say that I'm doing a forward fold for five minutes, three times a week, is that too much? Should mm. I do, can I do it seven times a week? Mm. Mm, yeah, no, maybe. Yeah. Depends on you. Mm. Depends on your biography and your biology. For some people, it may be too much. For other people, it's nowhere near their tolerance. 
So rather than make the theoretical question of, can I do this every day? Make it a practical question. What's it like when I do it every day? Is it Mm. too much for me? Mm. It may not be too much for somebody else. Maybe they're 30 years old and I'm 80. Okay, maybe you don't want to do it every day. Mm. Uh, But maybe even a 30-year-old, maybe they've got a very active job where they're asking a lot of the body and now doing this every day, even for 15, 20 minutes, maybe it is too much for them. Mm. So I can't a priori say it's not a problem. Instead, I would ask, is it a problem for you? And which pose? It may be that you can do back bends till the cows come home. I don't know if the cows still come home. Maybe that's a dated metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> but you can do back bends all the time and you're fine. But you start to do forward folds and maybe it's easy to go too much. So definitely listen to our own bodies then. You mentioned before that, you know, yin could be done by anywhere from, you know, somebody that's younger all the way up to 80. And quite often I'll hear around some of the studios that I teach in, especially from the people coming in or um, even outside of the studios, is people will say, I'm too inflexible to yoga or even I'm too old to do yoga. Is there an age when we probably shouldn't do yin yoga? Generally, once you've already died, you, you <laughs> probably give up on it. Because yeah. you've entered the stage of rigor mortis and that's completely yin all the time. But prior to that... Well, you're the master of it then, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You never move. Yeah. Paul Grilly has this idea of the arc of aging. When we're newborn babies, we're completely young. We begin life young. And you have to be careful holding a baby because its neck is not stable enough to hold its own head up. So you have to support the neck. But from that moment on, we, come, we become more yin-like. Mm. We become stiffer. So we're born completely mobile. And maybe in about our mid-20s, 30s, we're in the nice happy medium of a, a balance between yin and yang. And if we just stop there, it'd be great. But we keep getting more yin-like until mm. we end life in rigor mortis. Hmm. Now, in the young stage of life, you're working on building stability. Children should work on strengthening the body, building muscle mass and so forth. That's going to last them for the rest of their life. Children don't need to worry about increasing range of motion. They don't have to worry about doing yin practice. But as you get older and you find you start to shrink wrap more, you're losing range of motion in the hips, especially in the lower back. You're entering the yin time of life. And that you may want to work more on maintaining or regaining lost mobility. Mm. And you'll find that a yin practice will help more than a yang practice. Mm. I'm not saying don't do yang as you get older. You definitely need to keep the strength up too. Because mm. we also lose strength as we get older. Mm. But you're entering more of the yin stage of life where I think it's more important to work on that. But how much your tissues can tolerate, that's going to vary from person to person. Some, pers- some people once a week may be enough for them. Others may want to do it three or four times a week. So again, it's going to have to be, have an intention, but pay attention. How does it work for you? How do you feel when you're in the pose, when you come out of the pose the next day or two? If you're starting to feel tingling or weakness or fragility, then maybe you're doing too much. You need to back off. But if you're not feeling any of those things, maybe you can go a bit further. And so you're discussing a little while ago about how, you know, that we need to do yin practices for our body. We also need to do yang practices for our body and potentially yin practices aren't enough. What type of yang practices should we be doing? Yeah, this, for some reason, people think that if you're a yinster, you never do yang. Mm. Uh, I don't know where that came from. No, Paul really never said only do yin. He was reacting to, you know, he was from an Ashtanga background and a Bikram's background. He came from a very young background. His wife, Susie, was a dancer and a choreographer, Mm. very young. Mm. And so they were adding yin to balance their life. But they never said only do yin. Hmm. They still do lots of yang. You need balance. It's like the inhale of your breath is called the yang part. The exhale is called the yin part. Well, imagine if you only exhaled and never allowed yourself to inhale. Mm. You'd die. Mm. Imagine if you only inhaled and never allowed yourself to exhale. You'd Mm. also die. So you need the balance between the two. It's just if you also tend to be a yangster, someone who's always doing yang things, you need more yin in your life. Mm. But if you tend to be a yinster and you, you never do anything you know, challenging, aerobic, well, you need to bring that balance. Hmm. Think of the, the Dai Chi symbol, the yin-yang symbol. There's a mm. black swirl and a white swirl. They have equal amount of space. Mm. But a lot of people get unbalanced. They have too much of one and too much of the other. So you got to come back to, to balance that out. Hmm. What type of yang? Well, generally, I, I think of physical health as having three components, three orthogonal axes. 
for me, health has uh, an endurance axis, a strength axis, and a mobility axis. I find that my normal yoga practice doesn't give me a complete workout in all three axes. So for me to help with endurance, I will run sprints or I'll go up and down stairs. I'll do things to get my heart pumping. Mm -hmm. Then to work on strength, I will swing kettlebells and do push-ups and handstands, things mm -hmm. to build muscle mass. Mm -hmm. Then for mobility, that's my yin practice. Mm -hmm. I'll do yin, and I may do the yin after doing the other two practices, so I may combine them. And I can do yoga in all three of these domains. Yoga is not what you do. Yoga is how you do what you do. So I can be mindful in doing my sprints. I can be mindful when I'm lifting kettlebells. That can all be part of my yoga. And I'd finish with a shavasana, a restorative period at the end of all those things. So for my young practice, it's strength, weight training, and endurance, sprints, stairs, stair climbing, and so forth. Cool. It sounds like you've got quite a complete practice then. Yes. And once in a while, I don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> Some days I'm just lazy and I take a day off. <laughs> That's also very good too. So you've shared an absolute incredible wealth of knowledge today and we are so grateful for that. But is there anywhere else that we could potentially access some of this information you shared? I try to share this and I, I just find, I love to share what I find interesting. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a, a medical doctor, I'm not a researcher, but I just come across this stuff because I do have a degree in science and I'm fascinated by all this stuff. Mm. And so I, I do share it. So on my website, yinyo.com, there's lots of articles in my newsletters there's a whole book about yin yoga called Yin Sites up there. And there's also, as you mentioned, the forum where people can ask me questions of a technical nature. And it's open because a lot of times I don't know the answer, but other people reading the forum mm. do. And so mm. they can contribute to it as well. And then, then my books as well. The uh, most recent trilogy I'm working on is called Your Body, Your Yoga. Mm -hmm. I've got two of the three books done. Mm -hmm. The first book, which is called Your Body, Your Yoga, the first half of that book, volume one, is all about physiology of the tissues and how what stops us is not just short, tight muscles. There I talk about the nervous system and the water and the muscles and the fascia, and how all these things can contribute to restricted range of motion. Volume two is about the lower body, why are our hips so tight and knees and ankles and what is the appropriate alignment given your bone structure. The second book was called Your Spine, Your Yoga and focused on the axial body. And I'm currently working on the, the final volume, which will be the upper body, shoulder, arms, and also proportions and asymmetries. So that probably another year, year and a half before that comes out. Okay, so that's the next big project. Do you have anything else on the horizon that you're thinking about? No, I think once I finish that, that like I started this in 2013. Huh. And I'll probably finish it in 2022. So that'll be nine years of writing this trilogy. I'll probably take a break after that. And if anybody wants to get in contact with you, in touch with you, or maybe even train with you, attend your classes, is there somewhere where they can do that? Yeah, well, the pandemic now, the uh, yoga studio that I used to teach at closed down. So I'm just offering teacher trainings online uh, through Yoga International. But they can find out about that again at my website, yinyoga.com, clicking on the trainings page, and they'll see links there. We'll see what happens when the uh, pandemic is all over. If I go back to teaching in person or not, we'll, we'll have to see. Thank you so much for your time, Bernie. It has been such a pleasure having you. And it's always incredible to learn from you and to, to hear from you and hear what you've been reading and looking into and expanding what we know as yin yogis. Thanks for the invite, Truth. It was, it was fun. Always incredible to spend some time with Bernie and just letting you know, he's given me some links to a few of the things that he's mentioned throughout the podcast. So go to the show notes and you'll find them there. Just another heads up. This podcast was actually released secretly a week before the public release. If you'd like to get your hands on this podcast or YouTube classes a week earlier than everybody else, all you need to do is head over to livingin.com subscribe to the mailing list and get an exclusive sneak preview delivered fresh into your mailbox a week before everybody else. Thanks for joining me. I'm Truth Robinson. You can follow me on Instagram at Truth Robinson or if you'd like to donate to support this podcast, grab a living in singlet or train with me in yin yoga online or in person. 
go to livingyin.com. One last thing, by submitting a review on iTunes, you're giving the gift of this podcast to so many other people. And even though I love seeing all the beautiful reviews, and I really do, it's way more exciting to know that your review is stimulating so many yin yoga journeys all around the world. That has to be the easiest gift you have ever given.